but I didn't realize how much self-sabotage I had done because I, I gave them so much. But until you have like a health crisis and start spiraling downward and, and realize, you know, you, you don't have anything left. Like I, I didn't have, I didn't have energy. I didn't have the finances. I didn't have the things I needed for me because I had never put me first. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey, beautiful souls. I need to ask you a favor. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple, can you please leave a review? It will only take a minute but it will make a massive difference to getting these stories out to more and more and more people. I would really appreciate if you could help me out with that. Did you ever feel like your soul, like the real you, got lost somewhere along the way? As kids, we can be constantly trying to mold and fit into the way that our parents expect us to be. We believe that We're only worthy of love when we behave as we're told is acceptable. If we feel acceptable feelings, if we show only acceptable emotions, if we can please and do what is expected of us, then we'll be loved. And the other side to that is that we often feel that what we really need or want for ourselves is either unimportant or bad or inconvenient because we're told this over and over again. And so we can get to adulthood and have absolutely no idea who we really are. And we never put ourselves first in anything because we've been trained to believe that we're not lovable or worthy. And this week's episode is exactly about this, but to the extreme. It's about codependency. It's about when a parent is so dysfunctional themselves that As a child, you end up believing that your job is to save them. You're totally responsible for them and you bend over backwards, put yourself last, always put their needs first. But how does a highly codependent child grow into a fully functioning adult when they don't know that their needs are valid? I'm chatting with Shannon this week and she is the most beautiful soul. Shannon grew up in a highly codependent relationship with her parents. Her mum was bipolar as well. And Shannon has parented and cared for her parents to such an extent that she lost herself completely and she did hit rock bottom. 
but Shannon is strong and she has been fighting back, fighting to find herself, fighting to create the life that she deserves and fighting to find self-worth and self-love along the way. Please join me in hearing Shannon's story. What was five-year-old Shannon like? What do you remember of her feelings in the world? Five years old originally was really, like, I've always been a really happy person, oddly enough, despite what's going on, you know, even when it's really dark stuff. So I think I was, I was a pretty happy kid for the most part on my own, but slowly but surely, you know, I was getting old enough to start seeing the, the abuse and stuff going on in my family. I was really close to my granny and she was like tiny, tiny, tiny. She's four foot 11. And we were identical. Like we were thick as thieves and did everything together. And at, at five, I was starting to have an awareness of my grandpa hitting her a lot and screaming and kind of throwing her around the room and, you know, doing it with my mom too. And so that, that slowly like a, a real sense of fear started coming in. So I, I, I remember being very happy, but, but feeling like this, you know, clamping down of, of darkness a lot of times. And, and my, it was weird. My grandpa was a raging narcissist and would have all of us over and around constantly like everybody, the family must gather. So we were there all the time, but he abused the hell out of everybody, except me. Like he didn't, it's weird. He called me his littlest angel and didn't direct any of it at me, but he did it to everybody else around me. So that was, that was sort of the beginning of kind of when I started feeling powerless, which is interesting. One of my teachers that I've been working with, a guy named Panache Desai, um, he touched on it a few weeks ago. He's like, what's your memory of when you were first feeling powerless? in the world, which is sort of when you start, you know, having trauma responses to stuff. And, and it was around age five. I just, I just remember just starting to cry a lot and be afraid and not know how to, how to sort of handle what was going on. It's so young, isn't it? Because yeah, you don't understand what's going on and yet you know mm-hmm. that it's not good, I guess. Yeah. And all the yelling and the, but then it would stop you know, then it would be lovely. And then we'd be like, I have great memories too, of like laying under my grandpa's, you know, aluminum 60s Christmas tree and, you know, watching the light things spin. And, you know, and there was a lot of love and, and laughter and stuff too. And then all of a sudden, you know, somebody go flying across the room and screaming would start or he was really, one time he threw a knife at my grandmother and she wasn't cutting a watermelon right. And he took it out of her hand and threw it and it, it hit her and lodged into her, you know, we had to take her to the hospital. And another time he broke her arm or her leg. We had to take her and it just, it really affected her the most because she was so small and frail and depressed and like couldn't fight him. And he abused my mom a lot of the same ways. It was emotional, physical, verbal, sexual, both of them. And um, he, he was just, he was just really, really bad. But yet, my mom kept taking us back over there because, you know, yeah. it was her dad and that's where we're supposed to be happy. It's like, I just remember being little going, this is so weird. And sitting on the couch for hours at a time with my granny, just crying. Like, and it was weird. I had one of my first kind of intuitive knowing things. Cause I, that's part of what I do. I, I thought that I would be dead by the age of 10 because of the way all that went. Like it just was so dark and so heavy. I was like, yeah, I guess 10 will be done with all this. And so I didn't even dream past that. Like I didn't, 
I didn't think about getting married. I didn't think about going to college. I didn't think about having a family. I didn't, I didn't dream any of that stuff that most little girls dream. And it, looking back at it, it must've affected me more than I thought because at like eight or nine, I remember asking my mom and dad for an electric organ for Christmas because I wanted to learn how to play the keyboard. But I would sit up at the top of, of our stairs in my in this landing and I would play like minor key chords, like dirge sounding, like kind of ominous, sad chords and cry. I mean, oh my but I was a happy kid mostly, which isn't that weird, but I guess that's how it played out in me too. Is, you know, if I, if I couldn't be outside reading, hiding up in a tree, you know, sort of doing something outdoors with my dog on my bike, you know, if I was inside with, with all of them, you just never knew who was going to blow up and when, which was so weird. Yeah. It's just, yeah. it's just like you're on high alert all the time, aren't you? All the time. And interestingly enough, you get addicted to it. You get addicted to the stress of it and the, your nervous system doesn't know how to turn off. And so mine stayed that way. And, and my mom is bipolar. So that makes it even more fun. I think my grandpa was too, and not medicated. And so you just didn't know whether you were coming into manic rage or manic joy. Cause you know, manic joy can be kind of fun a bipolar family member when they're in a happy manic is pretty creative and there's a lot of fun going on. But when they turn to the dark manic or slight start sliding down the depressive end, that's where it gets, you know, funky, but it taught me how to read into energy and kind of read the room and know exactly what I'm stepping into. Like, it's really part of, uh, I see it as a gift now, but that whole inability to turn off your, your nervous system and stay addicted to like, uh, you know, all the time. It's, I think it's part of what caused my horrible health issues about six or seven years ago is, is I've got an autoimmune condition now because mm. my body literally can't turn itself off. Like it's fighting itself now. Like it's why I internalized the energy of all that chaos, I think. It's yeah, really interesting. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm sure almost everything that we experience in health is coming from those sort of things. I, I really believe yeah. that. You know, you, you yeah. don't know what to do with it. So it just, it goes somewhere. And then that's somewhere. the beauty of, yeah, that's the beauty of as you age, you learn tools to process the stuff in different ways. But yeah, mm. as, a, as a kid, you don't know what to do. And so your mum has obviously come from this environment her whole life. And how does it affect her as a person and your relationship with her when you were a small kid? Yeah, it, it's interesting. My mom and I have always been incredibly close or at complete odds with each other. It's a very bipolar relationship. As a kid, unfortunately, like I, was, I was 10 years old. So that, that premonition of at 10, my world, you know, 10, I would be dead. What it really was, was at the age of 10, my mom ran away from home. She had her first psychotic break before she was diagnosed bipolar. She ran away from home for two or three weeks. Nobody could find her. And I immediately walked into her closet. I put on her bathrobe and I walked out and started to parent everybody. I started to cook and clean and mother. And I had a little brother that was two and a half years younger. So, you know, I was, I was a mother to him. I, I parented my dad. I was, I was always the confidant of both my parents with any kind of information, which is not something you want to know when you're a little kid, but 
So mom was like, you're my best friend. You're going to do everything. If you stay, if you stay like good grades and keep on top of stuff in school, like you'd be perfect. I'll come get you out of school. Anytime I have a, you know, a little manic rush and we'll go play. So I always had like a 4.0 because she would grab me at any point and we would go to movies and go eat and go do, you know, whatever when she was in a manic and then bless her heart, whenever she was, you know, headed into the depression, it would be just as, you know, just as deep as the manic was high. She'd be suicidal and I would lay there with her. She'd keep me out of school to lay there with her in bed while she sobbed because she would tell me, you know, I, I, I'm going to kill myself if I don't have you here to hang on to. You know, so I, I literally, it was so bad at times, I would sneak downstairs and, and bring my sleeping bag and my pillow and my stuffed animal, and I would sleep across her, her door threshold. If my dad was home, I would just sleep right there so I could be as close, you know, as I possibly could. It was, it was really messed up, but, you know, you didn't know it at the time. That's what you, that's what you did. And, it, you know, it's weird. All this craziness, you know, I don't blame her for any of it. She, she did try to get help. She has been medicated mostly her whole life, but, but what she wasn't able to ever get a grip on was how fragmented she got from all the abuse. And so it caused what wasn't diagnosed in her. She's got some borderline personality disorder. So she's, she's fragmented and she acts out and and she plays people against each other and she rages. And so she's got, she's got some stuff. She doesn't do it all the time, but boy, when she goes there, it's, it's fascinating. And she's been with my dad since she was 14. So mm -hmm. she taught him a lot of these patterns and he brought some of his own inability to function. And so it's, it is a interesting dance when you get the two of them on the wrong side of things. So when someone is bipolar, you've got the highs and the lows. Is there other time when they're mm -hmm. stable? Yeah, yeah right. there's neutral times. And, and like I said before, even, even on the manic side of things, when it was a controlled manic, she was a blast. And she was like the mom everybody wanted to be around. And weirdly enough, we were the house that everybody wanted to come to. Like it was fun. And she, we would have slumber parties and she would have like, all my, my gay theater and choir buddies would come over and she's like, I'll put you in my go-go boots and you can wear my captains and we'll play with makeup and we'd have, you know, talent shows. And I mean, it was just, it was fun. But, but then there would be periods where it would get too high and everybody would have to go away. And then when you were coming back down, it was like, okay, then everybody can come back around again and it'll be fun. And then it would get so low, like nobody could come over then because, you know, it was a dark phase of the moon. The worst part were the times when she would get herself off her meds and have a psychotic break and there's nothing like that. And I'm the only one for some reason that steps up to, well, for some reason, hello, I'm, I'm a healer and I'm codependent. There's not some reason I was, you know, I was groomed to do it. It's in mm -hmm. my DNA to do it. So yeah. So um, I'm always in charge of her care when, when the wheels come off still. And it's tricky and bless her heart. Now she's got some dementia on top of it. So, you know, you literally don't know who you're going to get. She can be very, very loving. We can be very, very close. She can say things that just make you feel so good about yourself. And you're like, yay, that mom's winning, you know, and then literally an hour later, it's just like, <laughs> just like a pterodactyl. You're like, wow, this is, this is neat. Wow. So when your mom left home, for those three weeks, what 
what happens to you? I mean, you've obviously taken over and, and you're looking after everybody, but it must just be terrifying when your mother disappears and you don't know where yeah. she is. Yeah, it was, it was the first time I did first and only time really I think I ever saw my dad cry we he and I sat together and just cried for like two or three days straight just didn't know what to do he didn't know where to find her he didn't know what to do and I tend to go I'm good in a crisis I tend to just sort of go into let's get this done mode but what I know now that it did to me is I you know have horrendous safety issues and abandonment issues and you know just don't know which end is up sometimes and so you know, it's part of the fight or flight. Like that's all I know. And it's so weird. I didn't put this together till we're talking about this, the whole bipolar thing. It is fight or flight. It's, it's polar opposites. And so I, you know, I get stuck in, in one or the other. I'll just, I'll run away from their craziness when it's happening or I'll stand right in the middle of it, toe to toe. And I'll just be like, you know, fighting for my life. But I'm trying to find that middle ground, you know, that neutral middle ground where you can be peaceful and stand in the middle of it and not let it affect you. And I'm, I'm getting better, but, but yeah, I did, you know, it, it rocks your world when you're, when you're a little kid and, and shoulder the, the burden of care, you know, for both your parents. Cause I picked it up then at 10 and I'm 55 and I am still doing it. I'm yes. still doing it. I've, I've walked away over the years at different times I've estranged myself from them because I just was like, I can't do this and have a life and put up with, you know, with, because the trickiest part is as long as I'm performing, doing, giving, cooking, feeding, bringing joy, you know, providing, then they're nice. But literally sometimes the second I stop doing that, like the gloves come off and it just gets really, really ugly. So there's, there are just times I'm just like, I can't, I can't take it. Unfortunately, right now we're in one of those times. It seems like it always comes up at the holidays. It's like a trauma response for the family. They just, you know, they want me to do everything and then I do it. And then they just like at me and I'm like, I don't, that's not how I want to spend my holidays. I'd rather, I'd rather hang out with my dog and listen to Christmas music and be peaceful than you know, be in the line of fire. So it's interesting. So as of last week, we're, we're taking a break. Yeah. Have you had breaks before? Yes. I've, I've gone away for two or three years at a time because I just couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore. And, you know, I, I keep getting, you know, I keep getting therapy and I do energy work and I, you know, I do all kinds of transformational conscious transformation work and trying to deal with the shadow stuff. And I'm starting now on trauma therapy. I'm, I, I'm always doing something to work through the next layer that I find in this stuff, but, but my folks just won't. And so I'm the only one, you know, shifting, healing and growing with all this stuff. And so there's just times you just can't, you can't heal and shift that stuff while you're in the middle of fighting it. You just, yeah. you just can't. And this weird thing is I thought I was, thought I was better I thought I was grounded and peaceful and you know I've been meditating for like 258 days straight with this guy named Panash Desai it's been amazing and he does these energy activations and alignments like helps you clear a lot of these toxic emotions that live in your body it's helped me tremendously like just 
given me permission to cry and rage and, you know, do the things that you need to do in a really safe, soft way and to let those emotions out and flow. So I've, I've been doing that for, you know, almost 260 days. And I was like, yes, I'm good. This will be the first holiday. I'll be able to be like kind of Buddha-like and hang out with the folks. And, whew. Nope. Not yet. Oh, so. That's hard, isn't it? Yeah. So tell, tell me a little bit more about your dad when you were growing up. What was your dad like? <laughs> That's the tricky part. My poor dad. Um, this is the thing. I love my parents. I understand that broken people break people. I'm just having trouble forgiving them for the behavior. I, but like we talked about too, I believe in soul contracts and that you pick your, you pick your family of origin that you come into to learn stuff. So I've got that going too. But all that being said, my dad can rage like a crazy person and he can be the biggest narcissist on the planet, but there's a martyr complex to it too, which makes it really complicated. And, and I know he was never equipped to deal with a mentally ill wife, but weirdly enough, his mom was mentally ill and his dad, my grandpa was not equipped to deal with a mentally ill wife. And so my dad kind of married what he was born into, which is interesting. And so I think somewhere in him, it's just enraged him. And I just remember as a kid, he would, you know, storm upstairs. And if everything wasn't just right, this one time, especially it's like a living hell out of me. He just grabbed everything out of my closet and my drawers and my vanity and everything and just grabbed it all and threw it out my third story window out in the backyard, screaming and raging because it just wasn't like it was supposed to be, you know, and, and I, I mentioned it to him the other day. I, I, he said, because I was yelling at him, yelling back at him about something. And he said, you have anger issues. I was like, oh my God, you guys are like the poster children for rage. And I learned it from both of you. I'm literally just mirroring back to you, like what, what you do all the time. He's like, you have rage issues. And I reminded him of that, that thing. And I said, I've never, ever done anything like that to you. I've never thrown your stuff around. And I said, I grew up just so afraid of you. His ankles pop when he, when he walks because he's a marathoner and I could hear his ankles popping as he would walk upstairs. And it just, it used to scare the crap out of me because you just never knew, you know, what his mood was going to be. And I get it because he was not equipped to handle his emotions. He still isn't. He has no, no ability to, to deal with the energy of the emotions. And like he feels to me, it's, it's so weird since I'm energy sensitive and intuitive. Like I feel him like a pressure cooker and I can feel his anxiety, like going huh, 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 just under the surface. You could, you could feel it pulsing. Like I, I feel it through the wall when I stay in their guest room, his rooms next door. I feel it coming through the wall. Like it, it wakes me up some nights. His anxiety mm-hmm. is so literally palpable energetically. And weirdly part of the dance we do is I come up there to their house, which is 45 minutes north of me. And I get there. And if he doesn't know how to blow off that steam, that's usually when he'll pick a fight with me. So the lid has to blow off of his anxiety pressure cooker. And then he feels better. Well, it lands on me, you know, and then I'm like, I don't know what to do with all this. Although I kind of do, but it's not my job to, that's the thing. It's not my job to process his toxic emotions anymore. So you know, all that being said, this is where it gets complicated. He can be lovely too. Like they're, they're helping me out right now financially because I lost my home and everything in it and my career because 
little Miss Codependent kept rushing into their fire and taking care of them. So I, I lost everything because I put everything in their court a couple of times during some big family crises and, and I haven't been able to bounce back. So that's the weird part. Like he's, he is financially helping me out right now, but not emotionally. And that's, yeah. that's what happened at Thanksgiving. And then this last week I, they said, what do you need from us? I'm like, I just need you to be calm. Like I just need you to be emotionally supportive. And I even said, could you, could you possibly be as nice to me as you are to the mailman? Like, could we try that? Could we try just that pleasant, superficial, like, you know, I said, for some reason, the rest of the people in my world seem to like me. You know, they, they think I have good energy and I'm loving, but y'all can't do that. So I'm like, could you just, could you just take a deep breath and support me emotionally? And we, so we had long talk about it and all these promises yes yes it'll be different it'll be great it'll be perfect literally hour hour and a half later raging at me screaming about something i think they've they've thrown something out of mine again and i went looking for it and this is their favorite thing to do when i leave they throw my stuff away they go through my things and they they throw shit away they've always done that they've given stuff away or thrown stuff away it's like kind of a feels like a way to erase me and get control back over their turf again or something. It's very weird. I don't understand it. I don't want to. I've told them to stop because I'm like, I know you guys have dementia, but I could really be shitty and come in and start doing that to you. And I don't think that would be, you know, I don't think you would like it, but luckily I'm not petty and don't do it. But it was something like that. And I, I was looking for something and he just started raging at me and screaming and, you know, get out of it. it contorted face like I'm going out in the garage because I'm gonna just knock the shit out of you you're like oh my god okay alrighty well so much for that truce an hour hour ago but yeah. I, but he doesn't see it you know he doesn't he doesn't get it he doesn't know and I tried to take him to therapy he wouldn't go and we we went one time for a, <laughs> a two-hour back-to-back and we took a little break after the first hour and we were gonna get into it pretty heavy the second hour and I came back and he was reading my journal I left it while I went to the bathroom and he was going through my notes in my journal. I was like, wow. And I, I called him on that a couple of months ago and he's like, I never did that. So I don't think he has any clue of, of the things that he's doing. It doesn't, it doesn't forgive it, but I really think somehow, somehow he's blind to it. And she's too, well, actually I got to give my mom credit. My mom lately is more aware of her behavior. Like I've actually gotten to the point, I have to scream and stand my ground to get an authentic apology ever for, for shitty behavior from them. But I've gotten a few from her in the last six months, which, you know, it, that's sort of like the fish hook for the codependent. You're like, oh, there it is. There it is. She's authentically apologizing. She's, you know, she's being loving. Okay. It's getting safe. Like it's not quicksand anymore, you know? But so yeah. she's, she's, she authentically apologized for her part in the thing that they threw away, which was the dumbest thing. I don't know why, but I, <laughs> I have a gecko out on my deck here at the Airstream and it's in one of my plants and it's really cute, a little green thing. It has coffee with me every morning and it hangs in my plants and it will come down and actually hang out with me. So it's sort of like my little gecko friend. Well, I, unfortunately, I don't know if I stepped on it or it, it died, but it, I found it on the porch and it was still soft. And so 
I put it in a little saucer and like laid its little body out and I I wanted to keep it because it was kind of my little friend and they're cute and I just kind of wanted to honor it and I don't know I'm kind of shamanistic and I just want to keep it I made the mistake of taking it up to them to show it to them because they like lizards I was like because it was I don't know, it was kind of neon looking and you could see its cute little ribs and its tiny little finger. Like they were never still enough where you can really see them. So I took it up to show them and that's what they threw away. The second I left, they're like, and my dad was screaming at me. He's like, I don't want any dead animals in my house. While he's got deer heads and all these animal heads in his room. I'm like, hello, disconnect much from reality? So it was the dumbest thing, but but what it helped me realize is I, one more time, I took them a treasure to share with them and they literally threw it away. They disrespected it. So it helped me so much to stop and go, okay, this hasn't changed. You know, the bike when you were 12, your favorite bike that they gave to a neighbor because they liked her better. That's still happening. Like my favorite nightgown when I was little bitty, I come home, they'd given it to somebody that was staying with us. And they knew that was my favorite stuff. It's, it's just weird. Like, it's just always been, you know, like Christmas ornaments with my name engraved on it, given to me by my dead grandparents. I found them in the bottom of a, a Goodwill bag one time. And I'm like, it, it's got my name engraved on it. The, can, you, can you maybe not hang on to that for me? So, yes, yeah, so I, don't, I don't know what that is. I don't care to know. But I am, you know, I'm, I'm trying to set boundaries with it. And that one was really explicit. It was like, okay, I get it. But then here's, here's the weird part. My mom calls me the next day because I, I, I literally got everything out of the guest room. I loaded up my truck. I got all the stuff that I needed for like the next three or four weeks. Like I'm not, I don't want to be back up there. I loaded everything up. I came home. I told my mom, like, we're, we're going on hiatus again. Good luck. Because, you know, every time I go on hiatus, dad kind of neglects her to the point that her health really takes a deep dive and that's when I have to come back in with my medical intuition and my reading her energy and my understanding how her body works and like literally pull her out of the abyss like to keep her from having to be hospitalized in the middle of COVID and stuff and, and I just looked at her and I said I'm not coming back this time like I'm not coming in as the cavalry if if you get neglected to death again like I'm, I'm not doing it this time well, I don't think they believe me because every other time I've done it, but I don't know that I'm doing it now. But the weird thing is I get home the next morning she calls or she messages me on Facebook because she's, she's going deaf, which sucks too. So I can't talk to her anymore, but she messages me and says, well, we found your little friend. Like, what do you mean you found my little friend? My dad spent three and a half hours digging through the trash to find the gecko. She gave me an authentic apology before I left and she must have been pretty pissed about it because she made him dig through the, the huge trash can until till he found it. So I don't know. You know, what do you do with all that? It's so confusing, isn't it? It's isn't so, it? I, yeah. I mean, if you've had that your whole life, I don't know. It's just so, it's just yeah, so it's, confusing. It's crazy. And, and they'll yeah. just be loving and delightful. And then the next breath, not. And you're like, and then the, the really interesting part is when, they're both acting out and both knee deep in their trauma and unable to process emotions. Right. And then like you can literally feel like it is the most broken part of their wounded child getting together and they've got sticks and 
<laughs> where oxen, they gang up and they just attack. And it's just, I can handle one or the other of them usually, but I can't, boy, when they both come at you screaming, you know, mm. you wish you were dead and stuff. You're like, wow, this is, this is neat. This is not, this is not what I signed up for. This is not part of that soul contract. I don't think I signed up for this one. Have they got one other child or are there more than... I've got a brother, but we're, yeah. we're completely estranged because he took the worst parts of dysfunction of both of them and ran with it. And we are so diametrically opposed. Like I can't lie. It's his superpower. I don't, I'm not physically violent with anybody because it just terrifies me. And that's all he's ever been. And he's, I mean, still violent with me. When do we get around each other? I'm 55 and my brother still tries to be violent. Like, like we're kids. I mean, like grabbing me by the nape of my neck and whipping my head around and elbowing me in the kidneys really hard and knocking me over, you know, just stupid, stupid stuff. So I'm, I'd, I'm estranged from him and I plan to keep it that way. I actually had my parents put it in their will that once something happens, like someone will be with me if I have to be around him. Wow. Because he's, yeah, because I'm, I'm not, I'm not dealing with it. So when you're around 14, what happened at that stage because you started moving away a little bit yeah the control of your parents exactly especially my mom because my dad was kind of except for when he was coaching soccer or softball or doing you know some token stuff or we'd be doing like a family vacation or working in the yard like I didn't see my dad he he worked non-stop which was his outlet because he couldn't cope um so it was mostly mostly always my mom and I and as long as I did, you know, everything she liked and stayed focused with her, it was great. But, you know, by about age 14, you're starting to get into the things that you like. I found choir and theater and I was starting to kind of find my voice in my way, you know, boys start showing up and, and all that. And so I'm starting to like kind of find my authentic voice a little bit. And that's when it started getting weird. And this is the interesting thing. 14 is the age that my mom met my dad that feels like the age that she hits emotionally when she's her most wounded. So that's, she acts out from a place of a 14 year old. So it's that mean girl thing. That's how she still is. I mean, it's, it's 76 when, when things don't go well, she's 14, you know, she'll send you photo albums of the family without a picture of you in it on purpose, you know, and then send you Christmas ornaments of everybody else, you know, family Christmas ornaments, but, but you're not included. You know, so it's, so what, what happened at 14 is she just, she just started not liking the fact that she didn't have control anymore. And at the time I didn't understand it, but every time I would start to do a different group or a different thing, she would come in and try to run it. Mm -hmm. Like she always, like if I wanted to be a bluebird, she was the bluebird troop leader. You know, if I wanted to be in choir, she had to be, you know, in, in, in charge of, the parents group like every, every when I was in college and in a sorority for a little bit she had to be you know in charge of the sorority party so she always just had to interject herself into the stuff I was doing and on one hand it was helpful and it was you know good to spend time with her and all that but in hindsight it definitely feels like a controlling way of still you know kind of running things which is and and she definitely has a, a power struggle thing going down like god don't ever say to her you know that she's not the matriarch of the family anymore she loses her mind but yeah it's weird so 14 was just sort of that beginning of you know starting to starting to stand on my own but 
I still, you know, I still haven't completely separated from them. Even, even the times I've been estranged, I still, I still worry about them. I still have to check on them. So I'm in, well, you obviously have this sense of responsibility for everything, you know, and it's yeah. very hard to, it's very hard to lose that, isn't it? When it's so ingrained. Well, yeah. I tell you what's helping though. And it's, it's, it's a weird way that it's helping is realizing just in the last couple of months, how much their ability to be, and I hate to say abusive, but it is their, their ways of being emotionally and mentally abusive. I learned to do to myself so well and so deeply that I learned to completely sacrifice me and what I needed and always have put them first. I mean, I, I swear you could look up codependency and I think my picture would be there. And I did not, but I didn't realize how much self-sabotage I had done because I, I gave them so much. But until you have like a health crisis and start spiraling downward and, and realize, you know, you, you don't have anything left. Like I, I didn't have, I didn't have energy. I didn't have the finances. I didn't have the things I needed for me because I had never put me first. And so, I mean, I literally, I bottomed out. And, and so I've, I've been having to work through a lot of shame around that and a lot of self-loathing and, you know, and, and trying to understand, like, I, I didn't realize until recently that, that how, I've been coping with the world as an adult, like this rebellious, interesting enough, this kind of rebellious 14 year old thing for me too, of, uh, I just, I'm so tired of, of being a grown up. You can't make me do all these things that are too hard. I just, I sort of just stopped, but I see too, it's the trauma response. Like I was so overwhelmed that I just froze and just froze in fear because I did not know which way to turn to, you know, fix a lot of the things that I need to fix in my world right now. Yeah. When you took off overseas at different points, were you able to get a break from that? How did it help you to have that time away? For some reason, I'm fearless when I'm out, when I'm traveling and when I'm, you know, when I'm doing a lot of things in my world, like my only, my only fears come around when, you know, when they're attached to them. But yeah, I, I travel and I'm very adventurous and, and you know, sadly, I'm always much more peaceful and joyful and, and good when I'm away from them. And this is the worst of it. I get all settled in my spirit and all good with my energy and meditated and, you know, high vibration and yay. And I forget how jacked up they can be and how weird the situation can be. And so I take this hopeful, happy, you know, woohoo self to them and literally you know, there are times I can feel the energy. I'll pull into their neighborhood sometimes and I can just feel like, uh-oh, uh-oh, something's happening in the house. Like before I even park, I'm like, I, shoot, I don't know that I need to go in there. And then, you know, it just all gets ripped away. And, and then I have to, like I, I told you earlier, I have to come back home after the craziness because it, it's such a toxic hit, those attacks on your, on your immune system. And I'm immune compromised in the middle of a pandemic. I've got chronic Lyme disease. I lived in a moldy house. It was mold poisoned. And, and so I'm having to be really careful. And part of it is managing your stress. And, you know, so I'm, you know, crying to them multiple times, like, please don't do this to me. I can't do with the stress of it. And they just keep raging and just look at you glassy eyed like they don't get it. And then I have to come back and come to my little tiny airstream and cry and get myself situated again. And, 
get back on my feet energetically and emotionally. And it's like, okay, dude, this is, this literally, I mean, besides just killing me emotionally, it could be literally killing me if I'm not careful. And that's, that's what I finally realized the other day. It's like, I just, I cannot do that. I finally, I think I finally just built up enough self-love and self-esteem and, you know, just, I want to refill my joy bank and I don't want them, you know, making withdrawals from it anymore. That's a good thing to hear. That's a good thing to hear that you're at a point where you feel like you've got that self-love because you, you, you can spend your whole life not having that or even recognizing that it's something you need to have because you're so worn down by what's happening. And in your family, is there anybody that you can turn to for assistance or that's there for you? Nobody. No. No. That's the hardest part. No. I've got, um, I've got one uncle that is two and a half years older. It's my mom's youngest brother. My granny had a change of life baby that was unexpected. We can talk some and he's been, he's been supportive because he was strong and able to leave my grandpa. Um, he, he was like 15 and he just walked out of the family and didn't come back until my grandpa died. And so I've, I've been able to call him, you know, the times when I've needed to bolster the, the courage to just walk away. And, and when I needed a touchstone for somebody just to remind me just how jacked up it is, cause you get used to it, right? You get used to all the craziness and you're like, yeah, this everybody, I'm strong. This is fine. Everybody deals with stuff like this. Well, they don't. And so he was actually always a good touchstone for like, um, hello, this is not what most people deal with. Like you might, you might want to, you know, have a seat and not, not go back. So he's been supportive that way. And interestingly enough, my parents wanted me to be power of attorney and medical power of attorney, like financial and, and medical. And I told them to make my uncle the financial power of attorney. Cause I know that's what my brother will be coming for when, when something happens to my parents. Cause that's how he, that's how he rolls. So I was like, look, you, you let him do that. Cause I don't want any part of that. I'll do the medical cause you know, cause that's what I do. I'm a healer and an intuitive. That makes sense. But I don't want part of, of the rest of it, but really that that's kind of all I've got. Cause I've estranged myself from everybody else over the years because unfortunately one of the other things that my mom does as part of the borderline personality thing is play everybody against each other. That's always been a really fun game and um, just played everybody in the family against me. Anytime I would stand up for myself and set a boundary the stories, I have no idea the stories that she would manufacture that they would hear, but it just, you know, I have another uncle that I used to be close to. And like last time I saw him, he just screamed obscenities at me and sided with her on something that was like, just ridiculous. Like she broke a glass and was walking around barefoot in it. And I just said to her kind of, kind of harshly and strongly, like, mom, stop, just stop walking. You know, I'll get it. And, and her brother just started calling me a bitch like 10 or 15 times louder and louder and stronger and stronger. And I just looked at him and I said, you know what, them, I have to put up with you. I don't. And I haven't talked to him since that was like seven years ago. Yeah. So yeah, I just, yeah. Uh, it just is what it is. But, but you know, again, I, I love them as best I can. They are my parents. I'm just trying to get out of the line of fire 
I'm trying to get to the place where I don't get triggered when I'm around them because I'd like to be able to be in their proximity if needed sometimes and just be calm. But I don't want to be the go-to when there's a problem. I don't want to, I'm not going to do the whole laundry list of stuff anymore. I'm trying to practice what I really want to do, which is sort of bless and release them. Just let them, you know, do their thing. But, um, I know I'll have to still be around them and I, I know I will miss parts of them and want to be around them some, but what I don't want to do is react and act out in a similar way because I know better. I've got the tools, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I know how to handle myself differently. So when I stand there and scream back at them, you know, I'm, I'm having to learn to forgive myself for that. Cause it's like, okay, dude, you don't need the self-loathing when you react because that doesn't serve you either. So yeah. It's interesting. Your whole body has been reacting to this situation ever since you can remember. And Absolutely. you've mentioned some health issues. When you speak to the medical world about these symptoms, does, do they ever acknowledge that this is where it can come from? No, I've never, no, no I've never gotten any, any help that way. Unless, unless I'm able to find, you know, like a, a therapist or uh, a more holistic body worker. Like I do have a functional medicine doctor here in Austin. That's she's lovely. And that's one of the things that was so interesting. So yes, there is one. She had me do an intake form a couple of years ago when I went to sit down with her. And, and one of the questions was, you know, list, list your stressors. And I think she gave, you know, like six lines for it. I literally without overdoing it, I gave her six and a half pages. Mm. Yeah. And so she sat with me for an extra hour and, and helped me with some mind body stuff and a, and a whole lot of different things. And she even gave me her home phone number. Like what doctor does that? She was mm -hmm. like, I just have a feeling, you know, you might need it, which, you know, I have, if somebody's a little more holistically oriented, yes, I've, I have gotten, you know, have gotten some support that way. But mm -hmm. I, I tend to find most of my healing in, you know, in a little more new agey energy kind of ways because I, I'm, I'm so energy sensitive and so sensitive to the emotions and all that, that I, I've stuffed it so many, so many layers deep that that that's been what's helped me so much is somatic stuff and, you know, uh, Reiki and just energy body workers, just helping me get all the layers of that out of me. And interestingly mm -hmm. enough, I've gone to enough of them that that's what I do now is it, I learned how to do it because it worked so well for me, but I am starting just because I'm, I'm finally realizing at 55, you know, how much of the way I act in the world can still be a real trauma response. I didn't realize that until recently because I, I guess I wasn't ready to. But I did, um, I had an appointment yesterday, my first appointment with an EMDR therapist, and he's awesome. And he's, he's a, a gay Buddhist man from, from Houston that does EMDR and somatic therapy and talk therapy. And I'm like, perfect, because you don't have that toxic masculinity, that ragey stuff that that makes me scared. So yeah. yeah. So he's he's gonna be he's gonna be good. So what is the program with that? Is it a extended amount of time that you do those sessions? Um yeah, he's got he's got the EMDR, which is, you know, sort from the way I understand it, it's an eye movement thing, but it, it sort of helps the the left brain, right brain find find the trauma response and, and basically reset the circuit of it, which is kind of neat. And it's but he's got a quicker way of doing it. And it, I don't know what, what he called it, a flash system of some kind. And he said, you sound really primed because, because I, you know, I laid out my laundry list of, you know, 
traumas and memories and, and stuff. I don't remember my entire high school career. This is interesting. I had a thing last year. I went, I don't remember being in high school. I remember a couple of things that happened. I couldn't find my way to the campus. I couldn't find my way around. I couldn't find like things in the fine arts building where I'd spent all my time. So I ended up crying in the middle of this, this little reunion thing that we were having. And my teacher was like, you know, what, what's wrong? I said, I don't even remember being here. And she looked at me and she said, sweetie, with what was going on at home at the time, I don't doubt it. And I, I was like, could, I know, I said, could you tell me what it was? Because I don't, I don't know exactly. And she goes, well, you know, not right now. So, because uh, we, you know, it was a reunion, but that unlocked something in me that made me go, okay, dude, if you compartmentalized from trauma, an entire chapter of your life, like what else is back there that you're, that you're missing. So, so I gave this new guy, this, this huge laundry list of stuff. And he's like, great, you're primed. Like we can knock it out and get you, you know, get you back on your feet. Cause despite all this stuff, I'm a pretty happy camper. I'm, I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty joyful. Most of the time I have had periods where I have had lots of depression and lots of grief. Like I have mourned so deeply, you know, not having a functional family. That's, that's been so hard, but, um, and I'm okay with it though. I'm like, I'm okay with all the emotions. Like I can sit with them now. They don't take me over anymore. Like I can just, I can cry for a minute. I can be angry for a minute. I don't hang on to it. I don't keep score and I, I don't feel them hanging out in my body. Like they just sort of come and go now, which is really cool. I'm really interested that you went to this reunion and the teacher yeah. said to you with what was going on at home, it's like, wow, that must have been, that would have freaked me out. <laughs> yeah. when, especially when you're thinking you don't have really any memories of it. That would be so yeah. strange for somebody to say that. I know. And she, she was always somebody that I kept up with over the years and stuff too. Like she, she kept a special watch on me, which is interesting. She, she was really lovely, but, and I know I, I remember having a ton of fear. Like I was just afraid, so afraid of being seen, um, which I carried that with me for a long time. I mean, it literally it up until a few years ago, was I able to start being really seen like my, my whole career, I was a casting director behind the camera for a reason. Like, I don't want to be out there. Like, don't make me. So I was, I kind of erased myself because that's how that was my role in the family. You do and be, and you know, take care of everything. But other than that, be sweet and be in the corner and we'll, we'll pull you out when we need you to perform. And then we're going to put you back is really mm -hmm. how it always felt. So this teacher helped me work through some fears of being seen. Like she made me, I stood up for my first dramatic interpretation thing I had to do. And the class was almost over and I stood up and just started crying. I froze in fear, just sobbed. The bell rang. She told everybody to sit down. She's like, I'm writing notes for everybody. Park your butts. She's going to get through this. And it took me like a half hour to pull it together and actually do the thing. Wow. But I'm so grateful to her for doing that for me mm. because had I given into that, I would have stayed frozen and invisible and unable to move through, you know, that kind of fear. And I certainly wouldn't have traveled the world or been a casting director that worked all over the world or did any of the number of things I was able to do. So how do you think, I mean, after everything we've discussed, but I'd, I'd just like to ask you, how do you think your childhood has impacted your life journey? It certainly made me a very compassionate person. Um, at times it's made me like a wounded rescuer for sure. 
but I love the depth of compassion that I have for people and animals and the ability to feel into all the range of emotions that people have. I mean, that is one gift. Like I can, I can get, I mean, I can do it virtually now, which I thought I just had to be in someone's proximity to, to feel all of their energetic emotions, but I, I can do it, you know, I can do it virtually with my clients. I can, I can feel them and feel the, just the frequency of the emotions and the, you know, what lights them up and what doesn't. So that, that's been a real gift. I mean, it's, it's what I've used my whole career. In a weird way, it's, it's, it's been super isolating, but it's also taught me to, you know, to be very self-reliant, too much so. And I've had to learn, it, it's been hard to learn to ask for help because I never could get it when I would ask for it. So I, I went a little too far down the reliant rabbit hole, but, but I'm learning how to come out of that, which is good. I'm learning to ask for help from the right people that will give it. I know I'm finding... I'm finding that I can get lovely support and a lot of chosen family and, you know, a lot of, a lot of love. Like I, I have a huge capacity for love and, and I can get it other places and I can get it from my parents to the ability that they're able to give it. But I have a real clear understanding that, you know, they don't love themselves. They don't know how they don't know how to manage any emotion that they've got. They just never learned. And so they, and I, I feel I really feel badly for them. That's, that's why I step back in to be with them so much is I'm just like, you know what, if I could just bring a little light, a little joy and turn on some Christmas music and cook a few things that are comforting and kind of make it a little brighter in here and just turn up the energetic volume for them, you know, then, and I feel like I've, I've done kind of what I was born in the world to do, but it's when, you know, when all hell breaks loose that I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do with that still. Yeah. So. It's understandable. And can you tell us any books that have really helped you on your journey of healing? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Louise Hay was always such a big help to me. Like you can heal your life. I remember reading that back in my, back in my twenties and positive affirmations. Cause I didn't hear a whole lot of positive verbiage aimed my way. Panache Desai has a couple of books that have helped me a lot. Soul Signature and, you are enough. They're just kind of explaining, you know, how self-worth and self-love and, and getting back to your spirit. I'm, I'm really big into Byron Katie. She's, her work has been really helpful to me. Her, her worksheets on reframing stories, you know, that you get, that you get trapped in. Cause, mm-hmm. cause that's the other thing I, I did, I did develop a whole lot of, of fear and negativity and a whole lot of inability to, you know, think, think through difficult things. So I've, I've had to find a lot of tools to help me learn, you know, how to reframe those, those dark, just those dark patterns and the dark language and the, the funk. I've had to, yeah. I've had to find ways to, to flip those around and, you know, realize, okay, that is, that's something ancient that you learn. That's not yours. If you don't yes. believe that about, you don't believe that about people. That's not who you really are. That's not, that's not what you want to be. That's not what you truly think. So let's reframe it. And it, Oh, look, okay. That's, that's a fear response awesome. I can, I can stop that. So I've been doing a lot of that kind of work. Yeah. It's amazing to have those realizations, isn't it? Because you just believe what you believe until you realize I don't actually, that's, that's just something somebody's told me. I don't even need to to believe that. It's so much a part of who you are. Yeah. It's like your five-year-old brain is, you know, the one that came up with that that yeah. belief I'm finding like some of my money beliefs and stuff like came from, you know, four or five years old. And 
somebody was mean to me at a church and it smelled like money, you know, so I have this weird, weird thing with, with money yeah. and patriarchy and rules. It's like so strange how it little synapses start crossing, but. Absolutely. So just drawing on your own life experience, what do you think is the, or the one or two most important things that kids need to thrive in the world? I think they need to be seen. They need to be validated. They need to just be allowed to be themselves like warts and all, but given a framework of, you know, a structure of this is, this is safe and good for you. And, and, and this is not, and they, they need to be allowed to be kids. They need to not be given, you know, crazy parental things that are not theirs to have. They just let them, let them be joyful. Let them be kids. I had a stepson and it was, it was really fun. I didn't get to have kids of my own. Cause of course, guess who married the perfect storm of dysfunction of their mom and dad and brother in one delightful person. So I didn't get to have kids. Um, but I'm, happily divorced for 25 years, but I did get to raise his son. And that was a cool thing to get to give him the kind of parenting that I sort of wished, you know, had been stable that I had had. And it was, yeah. it was pretty cool. Like he thrived. It was so fun to watch him. It was just like watering him with miracle grow. He just would go Poo, every time we had him. It was really cool. And I watched his self-esteem grow and, you know, just cause I focused on him and spent really quiet quality time with him. And, you know, I, I didn't, when I was upset with him, I made a real point to not get loud and not, you know, get out of balance with him, but just hold boundaries and, and set, you know, quiet rules for him. And okay, great. You want to break that? That's fine. But this is what happens, you know? So it was, it was nice to be like, okay, I can do that. Cause I, I didn't have kids by choice because I didn't know how they would turn out. I was afraid to leave them with my folks when I traveled. And yeah. I was so busy traveling. I was, I was like, oh my God, I barely got out alive. This, this is not going to end well. Yeah. So, and I love kids. It was good that you had that experience of your stepson and you're able to yeah. give something yeah. back and, and just be able to take the power of being able to do all the good things. Yeah, it was good. I got him when he was four and I was with him until he was almost 17 and, and he was kind of ignored by both his parents. So I really, I, I feel like part of why I was married is for him. Cause I, yeah. I, we got to be there for each other in some really cool ways. It was, it was yeah. neat. So Shannon, you are the Airstream Oracle. You're an energy healer and soul empowerment coach, and you also have a podcast. So tell us about everything that you're doing. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I work with people that are, that are stuck in some way energetically that have, you know, have wandered off from their joy and have, have kind of lost their way because hello, you teach what you know. And so I've, I've always been able to find the joy in any situation. It doesn't matter how dark it's gotten in my world. I've always been able to find the tools to walk out of it. So I, that's what I help people with now is, is lots of, lots of different tips and tricks and ways to, to get unstuck and to find, you know, find their way back to like really, really, really deeply what, what brings them purpose and joy. And, and a lot of my clients, you know, it's, it's, energy self-care and it's a really awesome thing and I'm super I'm super happy to to be able to help people not from a place of brokenness but now from like an empowered healer standpoint and I am intuitive and 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 have some psychic psychic stuff in, in my toolbox and so it's pretty cool I'll sit down with people and can read in really quickly into like what what brings them the most joy and and they come in like really kind of kind of shut down and turtled and kind of flat feeling and, and turned in on themselves at the beginning of a session. And by the time we're done, 
they are lit up like Christmas and it feels like they have wings. Like they're so open and sparkly and that's, oh, yeah, it's, that. it's that a good amazing. thing. <laughs> yeah. It, it makes me, it's the happiest thing in my world. So. Oh, absolutely. I can just see how your face is lit up now and, and just being able to do that every day. It's such an amazing thing, isn't it? To bring joy to yeah. people's lives and bring a purpose to your life as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and just help them remember some of the things they'd forgotten for themselves. That's the best yeah. part. It's like, you know, where, where did you leave? Where did you leave all your joy and your passion? Let's go back and, and find it and see how we can merge it into your current world. Oh yeah. So. Sounds amazing. And where can we find you? Instagram? Uh, yeah, I'm on Instagram. It's Airstream underscore Oracle, or my website is shannonpinkston.com. And um, my podcast is Adventures of the Airstream Oracle. And it's, uh, it's all about my intuitive adventures, but it's, you know, it's all the transformational stuff too. So it's, it covers a lot of, a lot of this stuff and kind of my journey because I am a wide open book and I figure if anything helps anybody, you know, find their way out of the dark, I just, I kind of want people to know there is always a light at the end of the tunnel or a silver lining in any cloud. And, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of ways to remember it and a whole lot of people that can help you get there. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much, Shannon, for chatting today. You're such a beautiful soul and I've, I've just loved hearing your journey. It's been very, obviously a very tough one, but the fact that you're able now to use your gifts and the things that have come to you from your journey, it's it's a positive in the end, isn't it? Yep. I, th I think everybody ends up being that way. I mean, it really is. It really is a soul contract. It really is something... I picked and if you keep if you just keep fighting and keep keep pushing forward you'll it's 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 that whole michelangelo's david thing like you're just removing what doesn't serve anymore just keep keep chipping away until you get to that that beauty that really is you inside and and it's there for all of us we just have to keep you know some of us just have more to dig through maybe to get yeah. to it but it's there well, thank you so much Thank you so much for being here. Please check the show notes for all the links related to this podcast, including book recommendations. If you have a story to share, questions about this episode, or want to connect in any way, I would love to chat. Please come and find me on Instagram at mybigloveproject. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. Can you think of one person whose life might change a tiny bit in a positive way by hearing this episode? Please go ahead and share it with someone you know needs to hear it. These stories are so important. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me. I'll catch you next week.